Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of Church Sex Scandal Cover-Up. In the first part of this episode, we covered the stunning events of the week of March 19th through March 23rd, Monday through Friday. We covered how on Monday, the 19th of March, Mormon Leaks released an audio recording of an interview conducted by a former sister missionary at the MTC in 1984 and her former MTC president, Joseph Bishop, in which the sister missionary confronted him about sexually assaulting her in 1984 in a room in the basement of the MTC. We talked about how on the following day, Tuesday, the church issued its first statement in response to the media frenzy that resulted from the release of this audio tape. We also covered how the story developed on Wednesday, and then Thursday, the story had developed to such an extent that the church had to issue a second statement relating to this incident. I also talked about how on Thursday night, a story at KUTV brought two pieces of evidence into place for me so strongly that I was convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, number one, that this really did happen, and number two, that the church knew about it and that it did happen and was attempting to cover it up. And if you will recall, that story had to do with the anonymous former MTC employee coming forward and saying, hey, I worked there back in the 1980s, shortly after Joseph Bishop was the MTC president from 1983 to 1986, and I worked down in the basement, and... There really was this odd room over in the corner that exactly matched the description that was given by the sister missionary who said that Joseph Bishop took her down to that room in 1984 and raped her. This anonymous former employee also said that there was no way that any sister missionary or any missionary at all should know about the existence of that room down in the basement because it was in a dark, dank, smelly basement. The room stood out because it was completely finished in the manner of all other MTC rooms. And on top of that, you had to go through more than one locked door in order to access the basement. There is no way that this sister missionary should have known about the existence of the room unless she had actually been there or been taken there 
by somebody with keys and with authority to get her not only out of her Spanish language class, but then through the locked doors and down into that room. This anonymous employee also said that he was told that this room had been prepared so that the former MTC president, i.e. Joseph Bishop, could go down to that room to have a place to take naps. Now, remember, Joseph Bishop was not an old man when he was the president of the MTC. If he is 85 now, in 2018, and if he was president of the MTC from 1983 to 1986, then if my math is correct, he was 50 years old, or approximately 50 years old, when he became MTC president, and he served until he was about 53 years old. This is not an old man who is the president of the MTC who should for any reason need to be taking breaks during his day to go down to a subterranean office in the basement in order to take a nap. But not only was this former employee told that Joseph Bishop would use this office in the basement to take naps, but he would also go down there to pray and to prepare himself spiritually by watching videotapes of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. That was the story that this former employee who worked in the basement was told about this room, this odd room over in the corner, this odd room that exactly matched the description that the sister missionary had given of the place that the MTC president had taken her and raped her. And so he felt he needed to come forward with this evidence, and it's a good thing he did. So as I say, this was the piece of evidence that slammed it into place for me that indeed the sister missionary was telling the truth. The second piece of evidence that led me to understand that the church knew that she was telling the truth and was attempting to cover it up was what happened when the press confronted the church spokesperson, Eric Hawkins, with this information about this office in the basement. His response was not to seem surprised by this information, but rather he already knew about the room in the basement that Joseph Bishop had because his response was not one of surprise, but simply to say, yes, he already knew, yes. Joseph Bishop had a secondary office in the basement, but according to the witnesses they'd talked to, there was no bed in there. That's Eric Hawkins' response when confronted with this information. He already knew about the smoking gun. He already knew about the existence of this office in the basement. And if the existence of the office in the basement tells me beyond a reasonable doubt that this woman is telling the truth, then it should tell the church and Eric Hawkins the same thing and they were not going to bring it forward. Rather, they were going to attempt to hide it and not tell anybody. And the only reason, it seems, that he brought it up and admitted to it was when he was confronted with the fact of the existence of this office in the basement in the first place. So that was when I understood not only that this woman was telling the truth, but also that the church knew she was telling the truth and was engaged in a conspiracy to cover it up. So that was Thursday, March 22nd, and then we covered in the prior podcast the events up through Friday of March 23rd. Well, that was where the first podcast ended, and there have been a number of developments since that time in this case. And because of that, I've decided to make a part two of this episode, which is this episode that I am recording right now. The first thing that happened was that the original podcast went up on Thursday, March 29th of 2018. It went up at noon, and by that evening, I was speaking on the phone directly with the victim in this case. The sister missionary who made this recording is the one I was speaking with on the phone. And the way this happened was to summarize as follows. It was made a little bit complicated by the fact that I am anonymous. I go by the moniker Radio Free Mormon for good reason. And at the time, this sister missionary was also anonymous and had not revealed her name yet to the press. 
So we have two anonymous people trying to make contact with each other, or rather, she being anonymous, trying to make contact with me, who's anonymous. So what she did was she took a person that she knew and that Bill Real knew and reached out through this person that she knew to Bill Real, who reached out to me and told me that the sister missionary wanted to contact me and talk with me. So what I did was, after getting her email address, which she had created specially for use by me, I reached out to her and let her know who I am and gave her my cell phone number and she called me later that same night of Thursday, March 29th, and we had an hour-long discussion on the phone. It was then that I learned that her first name is McKenna, though at the time I did not know her last name, which has subsequently been revealed at the press conference and with the filing of the lawsuit against the church last week. And when I say last week, I am recording this on April 11th of 2018. So, last week, of course, was the week on which the press conference was held and the week on which the lawsuit was filed. And we'll get to those things in a minute. The first thing I want to say is that in speaking with McKenna on the phone, I was impressed with her evenness, with her solidness, with her groundedness, in short, with her credibility. She seemed quite credible on the phone. And that opinion that I had developed on the phone would only be reinforced when I saw her speak at the press conference. One of the things McKenna was able to explain to me was, if you'll recall in the first episode, I had an open question about how it was that Joseph Bishop got McKenna's phone number in order to call her right after the BYU Police Department went to visit Joseph Bishop on December 5th, 2017 at his home in Arizona. The BYU police report said that after they talked to him, he had picked up the phone and called McKenna about the police coming to visit him. Well, McKenna explained that the answer to that is actually quite simple. When McKenna was making her arrangements to meet with Joseph Bishop at the meeting where she posed as a reporter in order to get him to speak with her, and that was the meeting that she recorded the audio of, which was subsequently leaked by Mormon Leaks, McKenna had managed to get Joseph Bishop's cell phone number, and she had called him on his cell phone. So, of course, as soon as she called him on his cell phone, he had her cell phone number in his phone, and that's the number that he used to call McKenna after the police left Joseph Bishop's house after interviewing him. So that answers that question. One of the other things that McKenna told me during our phone conversation, and the reason initially that she wanted to reach out and talk to me, was because she had listened to the original podcast, and she thought that Radio Free Mormon did an outstanding and thorough job of reviewing the issues relating to the case and pulling the pieces of evidence together to make a complete picture of what was going on and how the church was trying to cover up this scandal. And not only did McKenna contact me regarding that episode, there is another individual who contacted me regarding that episode. This individual needs to remain anonymous at this time. He is, however, a member of the church. He is, however, in his 50s, and he is, however, a lawyer for a major corporation. And what this attorney did was he reached out to me because he wanted to talk with me about the episode. This episode had caused him severe concern about the church. He was quite frustrated he was wrapped around the axle about why it was and how it was that the church could think it was appropriate to respond to an event of this sort in the way the church was responding. His words to me were, how is it that the church can think it's right to use all this money to hire attorneys to try and cover this up instead of using that same money to help the victims and minister to them? Why are they so concerned with protecting their image 
instead of ministering to the victims. I do not think I was able to answer his question satisfactorily, even though I tried to put myself as best as I could into the minds of the leadership of the church. I do think, however, that the answer lies in the fact that even though some of us out here in Mormon land look at Mormonism and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as made up of the members of the church, in other words, seeing the church as the members, I think that as you get higher and higher in the church leadership ladder, and certainly by the time you become the top leadership of the church, no longer is the church looked at really as a collection of individuals or members for whom you have responsibility to look out for their welfare. Rather, the church becomes this impersonal, monolithic organization. And it is that church, the monolithic, impersonal organization, that is the church that has to be protected. No longer is a church composed of the actual members. And it seems to me that in a situation like this, the difference between how the church is conceived by the leadership of the church and how it may be conceived by those in the lower echelons is made dramatically clear. So when an allegation of this sort is made against the church by a former member of the church, or frankly even by a member of the church, it doesn't make any difference that McKenna is a former member of the church for purposes of this analysis. It wouldn't make any difference if she were an active member of the church today and a temple recommend bearing member of the church. The fact that she makes this allegation against a high-ranking priesthood leader in the church is perceived by the top leadership of the church as an attack against this monolithic impersonal organization. And that is what they have to jump into action in order to protect, in order to defend. And part of that defending it means doing anything and everything that has to be done in order to defend it, which also includes taking a member of the church, the one who's making the accusation, and shaming and marginalizing and doing everything they can in order to silence that member of the church because the member of the church is no longer the church. The member of the church is the enemy of the church, the church being now the impersonal organization that the leaders are trying to defend. So when this attorney asks me why it is that the church leaders respond in such a way to an incident like this and use their vast resources to protect the church instead of ministering to the victim, I think that's why. It's because they perceive the church as something completely different and apart from the membership of the church. Now, do I think that's correct? Absolutely not. I think the church is the membership. These are the leaders of the church that the members sustain and they ask for their sustaining vote and they seem to depend on their sustaining vote. And at least the illusion is that these leaders are in place because of the sustaining vote of the members. And yet when it comes down to it, the leaders are there for the organization and the corporate church. They are not there for the members of the church. The corporate church rides upon the backs of the members of the church and not the other way around. And in this way, and because of this incident especially, we can see that the leaders of the church are not the servants of the members of the church. No, it is quite the other way around. The members of the church are the servants of the leaders of the church. And they are not just the servants of the leaders of the church. They are the completely expendable servants of the leaders of the church. So whereas Jesus said to his apostles that if you want to be a leader of men, you need to be the servant of all well, the leadership of the LDS Church apparently has not gotten the memo on that one yet. One other mistake that I made in the first podcast that subsequent news reports made clear is that in both statements that the church made originally on the Tuesday and the Thursday of the first week, in both statements there was a commonality which I did mention in my first podcast, and that is that they referred to the investigation that was going on by 
outside legal counsel. Now, in both of those cases, I thought they were referring to Curtin McConkie, the church's law office. Well, subsequent reports show that it really was not Curtin McConkie, but actually Stowell Reeves, which is a different law office, and a specific attorney in Stowell Reeves named David Jordan, who was hired by the church in order to represent them in the negotiations with McKenna and her attorney. And apparently part of his job was to go and dig up dirt and compile a dossier on McKenna in order to show that she was not a credible witness and really there was no way that the church was going to pay her any money whatsoever regardless of what it was she claimed, regardless of what it was that she had on tape from Joseph Bishop. And a little bit later on in this podcast we will get to possibly the reason why the church chose to use somebody at Stowell Reeves in order to represent them. Because it may be that the church was getting buffer upon buffer between itself and the actions taken by the lawyers for the purpose of claiming plausible deniability, which is what they will eventually do once the dirt in this dossier gets leaked to the press. Which takes us to a news report from Friday, March 30th, 2018 by Chris Jones of KUTV titled Exclusive. Documents reveal how the LDS Church responded to MTC sex scandal. So this is a story that's going to break the news about how it was that the church put together a dossier, or at least their attorney, David Jordan at Stowell Reeves, put together a dossier of dirt on McKenna in order to try and show that she was not someone who should be believed, and also critically in order to make her shut up and go away with the implicit threat that if she did not, and if she did go forward and file a lawsuit, then this information and dirt that they had dug up on her would be released to the press, which amazingly is exactly what happened the very week after the audio was leaked of the interview at Mormon Leaks. This dossier and the information in it gets leaked to the press. So let me back up here just a second to make sure this is clear. Back in January, McKenna and her attorney present to the church a copy of this audio. The church then retains the services of David Jordan, the attorney with Stowell Reeves, to represent them in the negotiations. David Jordan then goes and, with the help of the church, we'll get to that in a second, with the help of the church, does a complete and thorough background investigation on McKenna, digs up all the dirt they can, puts it together in a dossier, and presents it to McKenna through her attorney during the negotiations process, saying, this is not a credible victim. This is not a credible client. This is not a credible claim. And none of it's credible because of all this dirt we have dug up on your client. Not because of the actual substance of the allegation itself, which is supported by the recording that McKenna got. No, what they're trying to do is say that McKenna herself is not credible because of all this stuff and all this history that she has that we have in this dossier. And the threat that is implicit is if McKenna goes forward with this lawsuit and files a lawsuit and takes us out of the shadows where the negotiations are happening behind closed doors and brings it out into the open in a lawsuit, then all this dirt in this dossier is going to be thrown to the winds and submitted to the press and everybody's going to find out all this dirt that the church and its lawyer has assembled on McKenna. And that is the implicit threat that is made to McKenna by means of presenting her and her attorney with this dossier during the negotiation process. So now fast forward to March 19th when the audio is leaked on Mormon Leaks. Now from the church's perspective, as soon as that audio was leaked, even though apparently it was leaked without McKenna's consent, as soon as that audio was leaked, now the big piece of evidence that McKenna had was public 
and the church was ready to go. And before the week was over, the contents of that dossier were being submitted to the press in order to try and discredit McKenna. And we'll go over the details of how that happened, but I think the timing is important to note, that it was this dossier that was being used as an implicit threat against McKenna that was suddenly now released once the audio was leaked on Monday, March 19th. So the point I'm trying to make here is that the release of the dirt in the dossier to the press was the very natural reaction by the church to the leaking of the audio of the interview that McKenna had with Joseph Bishop. It is the obvious retaliatory move that the church would make to the leaking of the audio. Okay, McKenna, you're going to go public? Fine. We're going to go ahead and follow through on our implicit threat and release the dossier of dirt to the press so everybody gets to know all about your skeletons in your closet. The reason I'm trying to hammer home how natural this response is by the church to the leaking of the recorded interview is because the church is going to say now that, hey, we had nothing to do with the leaking of this dossier of dirt to the press. That was not us. We've got buffers of lawyers in between. The lawyers handle the lawyer stuff. We're the church. We just handle the ecclesiastical stuff. It's Easter time, and in honor of Easter, we're going to pull a pilot on you, and we're just going to wash our hands of this whole incident. We had nothing to do with it. Yeah, well, that's why I'm taking all this time to show that for the church to do this and to leak this dirt to the press is the natural move of the church in response to the audio going public on March 19th. It is the reason the church and the church's lawyer collected this dirt in the first place. So now when the church is confronted about the release of this dossier to the public and to the press, the church's denials of having anything to do with it sound a little bit shaky to me. Okay, going back to this exclusive from KUTV, Friday, March 30th. This is when we start learning about this dossier. We actually learn about it from news agencies who received this dossier. So let me go ahead and back up a little bit here, okay, just so we can make clear what the facts are. All right, here's the facts. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a lawyer who represents them. This is the lawyer that they have been referring to as outside counsel doing the investigation. His name is David Jordan. I'm probably going to refer to him just as the church's lawyer because there's a lot of different names here and it may become confusing, but David Jordan is the church's lawyer. That's the outside counsel. Now, Joseph Bishop, the former MTC president, also has an attorney and his attorney is his son, Greg Bishop. So that's Joseph Bishop's lawyer, Greg Bishop. So here are the facts as they are related by the news. It appears that the church and the church's lawyer created a dossier of negative information on McKenna of several pages. The reason that I say that the church was involved in this is because this dossier consisted of two pieces of information that only the church could have provided to their lawyer in creating this dossier of dirt on McKenna. The first of those items was McKenna's disciplinary record in the LDS church. Well, there's no way that anybody can get that except for the church. The second thing, which is even more surprising, was the file related to the adoption of McKenna's baby when she was 17. So let's hold on and back up there a second. McKenna was pregnant when she was 17. She went to LDS Social Services. She was advised to have the child, to adopt the child out to another LDS couple, all of which she did. And this information was put into a file. It's her adoption file. It is very, 
confidential. As you can imagine for several reasons, not only does it have McKenna's name in it, it also has the adopting parents' names in it, and it has the name of the baby given to it by the adopting parents in this adoption file. Now when I say this is confidential, I mean it's really confidential. If you go to adoption files that are kept in courts, those are generally sealed court files and one cannot get into those court files unless they go and get an order from a judge allowing them to look into that court file. And those orders are not going to be handed out very easily. And yet, the contents of the adoption file that McKenna had with the LDS Church when she was 17 was provided by the church, and it could only have been provided by the church, to the church's lawyer, David Jordan. Now, other information was collected and put into this dossier, but those other items could have been obtained from outside sources. That's why I'm talking about the adoption file and the church disciplinary history, which could have been provided only by the church. So the church does not get to say that they were not involved in digging up this dirt or helping their attorney dig up this dirt because they had to be involved in order to get their attorney those documents. That's the point of that. So this dossier now is created by the church in company with their attorney, David Jordan. David Jordan then sends this dossier to McKenna and her attorney as part of the negotiating process by saying, you're a piece of crap. Look at all this dossier we've collected. We're not going to deal with you. You're not even a legitimate kind of client. You're not even a legitimate kind of victim. With again, as I say, the implicit threat that if you don't go away, then we're going to release this so people know about what an awful person you are and that you were pregnant when you were 17 and all the other things that they had collected against her. But in addition to releasing this dossier to McKenna's attorney, the church attorney also released this dossier to Joseph Bishop's attorney. Remember, Joseph Bishop's attorney is his son, Greg Bishop. Now, why on earth they did that, I don't know, because that is extremely questionable in my mind. And yet when called on it, they're just going to say, well, this is the normal kind of thing that we do. Though I don't know that that is necessarily true myself, being an attorney. We'll get to that here in a second. I'm still just trying to get to the facts of what it is that we know, so that hopefully this news report will make a little bit more sense when we get to it. So this dossier now, having been released by the church's attorney to Joseph Bishop's attorney, his son, the son now takes this dossier and makes a five-page letter himself quoting from portions of the dossier and begins presenting it unsolicited to different press outlets wanting to get this negative information about McKenna out there and telling the press outlets that they need to do their own investigation on McKenna and they need to consider the source. In other words, they need to look at the background of the person making this allegation because she's completely uncredible. Once again, this has nothing to do with the fact that she's got the audio tape. This has to do with character assassination. And this is what Greg Bishop, Joseph Bishop's son, does. And this is what the press reports that he does. So good for KUTV for revealing this fact that Greg Bishop has been presenting them with a dossier of dirt on McKenna, which is the news outlet that reported this on Friday, March 30th. This is why the title of this news article is exclusive. Documents reveal how the LDS Church responded to MTC sex scandal. Going on now, on March 20th, as a sexual assault scandal was exploding around former Missionary Training Center President Joseph Bishop, his son and attorney, Greg Bishop, sent an email to Two News Unsolicited. This is the email that he's been shopping around to different media outlets, including Two News. Two News got it. Now Two News is going to report on it. 
In the email, the article continues, he unspools a five-page dossier about the past of the woman who had accused his father of rape. That's the woman we now know as McKenna. We also know her last name is Denson. This is McKenna Denson. The email included the woman's criminal record, alleged false allegations she'd made in the past, and jobs she had lost. See, they really pulled out all the stops on trying to get together all the dirt that they could on McKenna and taking things and twisting them in the worst possible light, as McKenna ultimately will say at the press conference. It even includes details. This is the article from March 30th. It even includes details about an incident that occurred when she was 17 years old. Now, at this point on March 30th, when the press is reporting on this, this is the adoption about an incident that occurred when she was 17 years old. This is her pregnancy and her adoption when she was 17. At this point in the timeline, the press is not specifically referring to what this incident is. It even includes details about an incident that occurred when she was 17 years old. Bishop encouraged reporters, that's Greg Bishop, the son, Bishop encouraged reporters to examine the woman's past, adding, quote, consider the source, unquote. In the last two days, Two News has obtained a letter that was written by David Jordan, a lawyer at the firm Stowell Reeves, acting on behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, once again, this is David Jordan, the church's lawyer, the one they refer to as outside counsel in their statements. And Two News has obtained a letter that was written by this lawyer, David Jordan, the lawyer for the church. The document is a response to a letter from the woman's attorney, Craig Vernon, requesting a settlement from the LDS Church. So, Craig Vernon, McKenna's lawyer, sends a letter to the church saying, we want a settlement. And in response to that request, the church's lawyer sends Craig Vernon a document in response to that request. And that document is the dossier that we've been talking about. The document includes everything we saw in Bishop's email, that's Greg Bishop's email, plus a review of her ecclesiastical church record. At the bottom, Jordan indicates that he sent the letter to Greg Bishop. Okay, so now this is how we know and how the press knew that Greg Bishop got a hold of this dossier of information from the church's attorney, David Jordan. Because when David Jordan sent the dossier to McKenna's attorney, he puts at the bottom of this letter a CC that says Greg Bishop. So he sent the same thing to Greg Bishop, who is Joseph Bishop's attorney, Joseph Bishop, the former MTC president. He gave all this negative information to Greg Bishop. So that is the trail of the information which Greg Bishop is then going to take to the press. The article goes on, it appears Greg Bishop took portions of the letter and at times repeated allegations word for word and sent it to the media. So this is where he does his recapitulation of the original letter and the dossier that was sent by the church's attorney and then was cc'd to Greg Bishop. And Greg Bishop in turn takes all this negative information that was in the church's attorney's letter, recapitulates it in his own letter and then takes his own letter and sends it out to all the media outlets he can find. One of which, unfortunately for Greg Bishop, is KUTV, who publicly blows the whistle on his unethical behavior. By the way, has anybody thought about filing a bar complaint against Greg Bishop for this? Just wondering. Going back to the story, at least three media outlets did stories based on the letter. The letter sent to them by Greg Bishop, in which was recapitulated the dirt from the dossier that was created by the church and the church's lawyer. David Jordan, the church lawyer, acknowledged that he wrote the letter and only sent it to Greg Bishop 
because he had been included in an email chain by the accuser's attorney. David Jordan says he did not release the letter to the media. So David Jordan said, hey, I didn't release this letter to the media. I'm above board here. I wouldn't do that. I gave it to this other attorney, the attorney for the MTC president. I gave it to Greg Bishop because he had been included in an email chain from McKenna's attorney. So he figured it was okay. Maybe true, maybe not. Hard to tell from this angle. Except I do have to point out something from a legal perspective. David Jordan is the church's attorney. David Jordan represents the church and the church's interests. He does not represent Joseph Bishop. That's why Joseph Bishop has his own attorney, who in this case is his son, Greg Bishop. When David Jordan, the church's attorney, sends Greg Bishop, Joseph Bishop's attorney, this dossier that we've been talking about, he is sending this information to somebody whom he does not represent, and it has the appearance of David Jordan, the church's attorney, working hand in glove with Greg Bishop, who is Joseph Bishop's attorney. Now, let me give a little bit more background on this in order to help you understand why this excuse that David Jordan gives for having sent this material to Greg Bishop seems a little suspicious to me. First off, McKenna's attorney in February sends a demand letter to the church's attorney and that demand letter is sent by email and it is also sent to Joseph Bishop's attorney. Now, that makes absolute sense because both the church and Joseph Bishop are potential defendants in the civil case and in fact they are both named in the civil case as we have found out when last week the civil case was actually filed. Both the church and Joseph Bishop are named as defendants and so it makes sense for a demand letter to be sent by McKenna's attorney to both the church's attorney as well as Joseph Bishop's attorney. However, in March, the church's attorney sends a letter in response to the demand back to McKenna's attorney. And in this response is seven pages of very defamatory material about McKenna. It represents a great deal of research that was done by the church's attorney into digging into the background and the history of McKenna. It is a great deal of attorney work product that the church's attorney is now sharing with McKenna's attorney. And basically, it's a seven-page letter. It's dated March 13, 2018. And in it, it tries to depict McKenna as somebody who is completely untrustworthy, completely uncredible, in order to show that there is no way that the church is going to give her a dime. So it makes sense that the church's attorney would send that to McKenna's attorney. What does not make sense is that the church's attorney would then send the same material, the same seven-page dossier letter containing all of this information to Joseph Bishop's attorney as well. Now, if the church's attorney had said, hey, I'm sorry, I just hit reply all instead of just replying specifically to McKenna's attorney, that's a mistake. It could happen to anybody. But no, that's not what he says. Instead, the church's attorney says, well, the original demand letter was sent to both me and to Joseph Bishop's attorney, so I figured it was okay for me to send my seven-page dossier that represents days and days and weeks of intensive attorney investigation also to Joseph Bishop's attorney. This is attorney work product. It is paid for by the church in order to represent the church. The church did not pay the church's attorney to do all this investigation in order to give it to Joseph Bishop's attorney. Or did they? 
That's the question I have, and that question will only be intensified a little later in this podcast when we cover another aspect of this saga. Now that has been a somewhat long diversion from the KUTV news article that I was originally quoting from. I'll get back to that right now, in which article they are covering how the church collected a dossier of dirt on McKenna. The article goes on to quote from an attorney to get an expert opinion about the propriety of this release of information. Salt Lake attorney, though, Greg Scordis. This is an attorney who is not involved in any of this, but is approached by the press for his opinion about what the heck is going on and the propriety of it. Salt Lake City attorney Greg Scordis said the document was meant to be used for negotiating a possible settlement, but releasing it was improper. So believe it or not, even attorneys have, at times, ethics. And this attorney says, look, we understand that accumulating and assimilating this information was reasonable and it's usually what happens with attorneys when you're talking about somebody making a claim against another organization in order to talk about negotiations. That's normal, that's natural, that happens all the time, but releasing it to the press was improper. And this is why the church wants to throw it on David Jordan and David Jordan wants to throw it on Greg Bishop. You see, it goes downhill here and you know what runs downhill. Well, The impropriety of releasing this information to the press is what runs downhill to Greg Bishop. This attorney goes on, Greg Scordis goes on, it's a little bit problematic to me that this kind of information is now released, Scordis said. Then they talked to Turner Bitten, who is with the Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault, and he says even if the church didn't put out the letter, the methods used in it are intended to silence accusers. So note what Turner Bitten is saying. He's with, again, the Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault, so he's going to have a certain perspective on this. And his perspective is that even if the church did not release this letter to the press, so he's taking the church at its word that they didn't release this to the press, it wasn't their intent that it be released to the press, he's saying that merely the creation of this letter in the first place by the church is problematic and the reason for that is because the methods used in it are intended to silence accusers. So what he's making clear here is that this is the implicit threat that's being used by the accumulation and the assimilation of this dossier by the church in the first place is that the methods used are intended to silence accusers. He goes on, quote, it sends a message to that individual person, that's McKenna, but to everyone else that if you come forward We are going to dig through your past. We're going to dig through your experiences, who you are, your very identity. So Bitten says, in his opinion, just the creation of this by the church, separate and apart from it being released to the press, which is awful, but just the creation of it and this implicit threat that it contains within it is problematic. Bitten also said the church has every right to collect the information it did on Bishop's accuser, but said the way they did it and what they collected may not sit well with church members. And here we come down to the distinction between the law and ministering. This is what the attorney who contacted me after my first podcast had the problem making the separation between. Here's the law and here's the ministering. Here's the defense of the church and here's taking care of the members. Here's going to such links to defend the church that we are going to dig up dirt and collect a dossier on a former member of the church in order to intimidate that former member of the church simply because the former member of the church was assaulted by a leader in the LDS church, has brought it to the light, is threatening to go public with it, 
And in order to keep her from going public with it, what the church does is it goes through McKenna's history, it goes to lengths to accumulate a dossier on her and present it to her through her attorney in hopes of shutting her up and making her go away. This is the distinction between the corporate church that the leaders understand to be the church and the church that the leaders are going to protect versus the members of the church, which are actually just cannon fodder and expendable. And in fact, they come forward with the truth about a leader acting inappropriately. The member of the church now becomes the enemy and has to be chemotherapied out of existence. So once again, we're still in this article from March 30th. We're quoting from Turner Bitten with the Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault. He said that the church has every right to collect the information it did on Bishop's accuser, but said the way they did it and what they collected may not sit well with church members. And indeed, they are correct. And one of those church members for whom it did not sit well was my new friend, the attorney, who called me and is really wrapped around the axle about why it is that the church is spending all this money to stole Reeves to represent them and to protect them instead of using it to help the victims. Turner Bitten goes on with another quote, The vast majority of people that I know that are people of faith don't want to see this kind of behavior, he said. What they don't want to see is the church engaging in a way that looks like a ruthless corporation at times, period, end of quote. Well, that is the understatement of the century that the LDS Church, by doing this, might actually sort of come across to its members as acting like a ruthless corporation rather than the one and only true and living Church of Jesus Christ upon the face of the earth, and that the leaders who are doing this and who are authorizing these actions to be taken are holding themselves out as apostles of Jesus Christ, who are the ones who are supposed to most closely emulate the example of Jesus Christ. So there's this huge disconnect going on in the minds of many of the members of the church because of what they're seeing here. So this is a problem now for the church. And of course, Eric Hawkins, dun, da, da, the church spokesman, comes forward. He's asked for a statement on this. And here's what he says in an email about this issue when he's contacted by KUTV News. He says, quote, It is customary and acceptable for outside counsel. Okay, there's David Jordan, outside counsel, right? We're going to call him outside counsel. He's outside. See, he's a buffer. He's really, yeah, you know, he's not inside counsel. We went and got outside counsel. And now you start thinking maybe there was a reason they went and got outside counsel. But the statement says, It is customary and acceptable for outside counsel to correspond with the attorneys representing other parties. Yeah, well, no, duh. It is, it is customary and acceptable for outside counsel to correspond with the attorneys representing other parties. Then he says, including sharing information that may support or refute their claims. And Eric Hawkins goes on in his statement. He says this on behalf of the church. And remember, he's not saying anything that hasn't been cleared by the leaders, top leaders of the church for him to say. Spokesmen and spokeswomen for the church say nothing but what is authorized by the leaders of the church. And they've made that clear on prior occasions in public statements as well. He goes on in this email to the press. As we've said in both statements, that's both the first and second statement they made on the Tuesday and the Thursday of the first week, this whole thing was hitting the fan. As we said in both statements, our work to address this matter has included the work of outside legal counsel to interview and investigate the facts and allegations. This requires access to membership information. Okay, hold it. Hold it right there. This requires access to membership information information. 
Why on earth does it require access to membership information? How does the fact that McKenna got pregnant when she was 17 years old have anything to do with the facts and the allegations, as Eric Hawkins says? How does her disciplinary history in the church have anything to do with the facts and allegations related to her being raped at the MTC, as Eric Hawkins says? How does the fact she adopted her baby out to an LDS couple, and even the name of the baby, have anything to do with the facts and allegations of her being raped at the MTC? So Eric Hawkins issues these little statements by email in such a way as that he's not going to be asked follow-up questions on them. But these are my follow-up questions. Once again, this is the statement he makes in the email on behalf of the church. As we've said in both statements, our work to address this matter has included the work of outside legal counsel to interview and investigate the facts and allegations. This requires access to membership information. Okay, that's the first huge lie and the first statement that I would like to ask follow-up questions on. But he's not done. He goes on in this statement. During this process, it is customary and acceptable for outside counsel to correspond with the attorneys representing other parties, including sharing information that may support or refute their claims. So here's my question on that, Eric. How does any of the church inside information that was accumulated for this dossier, how does any of the adoption history, how does any of the church disciplinary history, how does any of that have anything to do with supporting or refuting McKenna's claims that she was raped? Would you answer that for me? Or really, is it not accumulated in order to have dirt on her, dirt that the church hoped she would be embarrassed and not want to be made public, and dirt that is presented to her with the implicit threat that if she goes forward, it will be made public with the hope that she will back down, shut up, and go away? Eric Hawkins goes on to say in this statement, but it's also important to not confuse the legal and ecclesiastical lines. Now, here's where he's going to try and do the great magic act of saying, hey, this church, we're all ecclesiastical in this church because we got apostles of Jesus Christ up here and going all the way down the line to your bishops and your elders and your home teachers, well, now ministers, but all the way down the line, we've got this ecclesiastical side. But over here is the lawyers, and there's this huge gulf between them. And that the lawyers that the church hires to represent itself may act like sons of bitches and do awful and horrible and unethical things. But look, you need to keep that separate and apart from the church as an ecclesiastical institution. Don't blame the church as an ecclesiastical institution for the crappy things that the church lawyers do. That's what he's trying to say here. Once again, I'm going to continue reading his statement. But it's also important to not confuse the legal and ecclesiastical lines. Attorneys are doing the legal work, he says, and that has contributed substantially to what we understand about this case. Well, actually, it contributes substantially to all the dirt you've dug up on McKenna. And that has contributed substantially to what we understand about this case. But ecclesiastical decisions about church members remain in the hands of local leaders. This is what Eric Hawkins is saying on behalf of the church. Ecclesiastical decisions about church members remain in the hands of local leaders whose responsibility it is to determine how to minister to, discipline, and care for the members in their stewardship. So he says no matter what the attorneys do over here, the ecclesiastical decisions about church members remain in the hands of the local leaders whose responsibility it is to determine how to minister to, discipline, and care for the members in their stewardship. 
Now, hang on a second. Eric, are you really expecting us to swallow that? You are the one who has confused the legal and ecclesiastical lines, not us. And you do it here when you took ecclesiastical information and gave it to the lawyers. Remember, he says that the ecclesiastical decisions are about how church leaders minister to discipline and care for the members in their stewardship. Well, that includes a record of their disciplinary history. It certainly includes an adoption file for a member. But it was the ecclesiastical side of the church that took those documents and that information, and they had no trouble giving it over to the legal side. So while Eric Hawkins is saying, hey, you guys need to not make the mistake of confusing the ecclesiastical and the legal lines, it is the LDS Church that has already not only confused the two, but merged the two. Eric Hawkins says keep them separate. The church has already made them the same. And once again, note that the purpose of this statement is to say, hey, we're the church, but don't blame us because the lawyers did this. It's not our responsibility. Now, it's certainly true. I've got to say at the outset, I want to be fair here, okay? It is certainly true that this could have happened, that the church could have assimilated all of this dirt with the help of their attorney, but the church was also involved, as we've talked about, and that this was done as part of a negotiating process. I don't think that was the correct thing to do. I agree with Turner Bitten about this, but it is what is customarily done with large corporations, and unfortunately, the church is acting like a large corporation here, much more than a church. But it is customary for corporations to do that, but not to release it to the press. So once again, it is possible that the church and their attorney comes up with his dossier, that this dossier is then given in confidence to Joseph Bishop's attorney, Greg Bishop, and that Greg Bishop then goes and takes it to the press. Now, when Greg Bishop took it to the press, no one is saying that that was right. Even the press knew how wrong it was. It was so wrong that they ran an exclusive news article revealing the fact that Greg Bishop had given it to them. So all I'm saying is that, yes, it is possible that the church's hands could be clean in this, that they had no intent that this go to the press, even though, once again, the whole purpose of creating in the first place was to send the message to McKenna that if she didn't be quiet and go away, then indeed this was going to go to the press. So this was the natural consequence of the audio interview being leaked was that this stuff got shared with the press. McKenna goes public, she's going to get hammered by the church, and they're going to make their implicit threat now a reality. So even though it is what we would expect the church to do when McKenna went public, it is not necessarily what the church did. That's all I'm trying to say. I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt here, okay? And it is possible that really Greg Bishop is the guy who went to the press and neither the church nor the church's lawyer, David Jordan, had any idea he was going to do that. Okay, so I want to say that at the outset. However, I cannot help but notice that if the church really was behind this, the leaking of the information to the press and wanted it to happen and maneuvered it to happen, but still have plausible deniability, they couldn't have found a better way or a more obvious way of doing it. First off, they hire outside counsel, David Jordan, who's their first buffer. He's outside legal counsel, so he's not part of the church, even though I think he's a member of the church. His office is not associated with the church. He's outside legal counsel. And then that information then collected by the church is given to David Jordan. It is then sent by David Jordan to Greg Bishop, who is a second buffer, who represents his father, Joseph Bishop. And then it is Greg Bishop who sends this information to the press. So once again, if the church wanted to have plausible deniability in this, 
then it would make sense for them to do it this way through a buffer of not one but two attorneys, the first being outside counsel, the second being the counsel for Joseph Bishop. But in addition to that, I think that Eric Hawkins tips his hand in the statement that he issues in response. Notice what he says. He says, as we've said, in both statements, remember that's the first and second statement of the church issued on Tuesday and Thursday of the original week of March 19th when all this was blowing up. As we've said in both statements, our work to address this matter has included the work of outside legal counsel to interview and investigate the facts and allegations. So I noted in my first podcast that this was the one common thread between the first and the second statement was this reference to outside legal counsel. So it's an interesting question as to why did they put that same comment in both of their statements. Now it seems that Eric Hawkins is quite ready to refer to that language in both statements, which is what he does here. He said, as we said in both statements, our work to address this matter has included the work of outside counsel. We already said it in both of our statements, folks, that we were employing outside counsel to investigate. We're not doing the investigation. We have outside counsel doing the investigation. We've already made this distance between ourselves and the investigation. Now, we know that that distance is somewhat illusory because of the documents that the church had that they had to cooperate with in giving to their attorney. But nevertheless, what Eric Hawkins says is very interesting. We've already said that we're working with outside counsel and that the outside counsel is doing the investigation, not us, right? And we not only said it once, we said it in both of our statements. So once again, the question comes to, why did they put that in both their statements? It seems that Eric Hawkins is quite ready to refer to that language in both statements as soon as the crap hits the fan about the contents of the dossier being leaked to the press. Immediately, Eric is going back to the language in both statements and quoting from it and saying, hey, we already told you this. Is it possible that that language was put in both statements for use in just such a circumstance? as this, that if and when there was any blowback about leaking confidential information to the press, the church was already prepared to cite this language as evidence they were doing nothing wrong. And if they already had this language in their first and second statement, did the church in fact put it in there for just this purpose? In other words, why did they have that language in the first and second statement to begin with? What purpose did it serve? Unless it was to be there so that they could go back and say, hey, we already said outside counsel is doing this investigation. We have nothing to do with it. We have nothing to do with the dirt. We have nothing to do with it being released to the press. Now, it seems that what they are doing is planting in the first and second statement a defense of actions that the church may be accused of down the road if this blows up when this information is released to the press. Because that is exactly what Eric Hawkins uses it for when it blows up and the church is accused of leaking information to the press. What he says is, as we've said in both statements, our work to address this matter has included the work of outside legal counsel. We already put it in there, our plausible deniability. We already put it in there that we're not doing this. It's outside legal counsel. And therefore, you need to understand that we're not responsible. Well, the problem is, Eric that by making that statement, what you've said is you put that language in the first and second statement in order to be used to deny responsibility. And here's the critical part. If indeed the church put that language in the first and second statement in order to use 
in such an eventuality, then they were already planning on that eventuality at the time they wrote the statement, otherwise they wouldn't have included the language. And if they were planning on that eventuality when they wrote the statement, it is suggestive of the fact that, indeed, they were working behind the scenes in order to get this information released to the public. It is a very common thing for corporations to hide behind their lawyers. Now, the lawyers don't necessarily appreciate it, but lawyers understand a lot of times their job is to take a bullet for their client. But here we don't just have the church hiding behind their lawyers. They're doing that too. But what we have here in the first and second statement that they make, what looks like a preemptive hiding behind their lawyers. In other words, we're going to let you know that we're working with outside legal counsel because those outside legal counsel may end up needing to be blamed by us for things that we don't want you to think that we did. I hope that's clear enough. It's a bit of a complicated little thing, but I think it's very fascinating. I think it's important because I think that it is an indication that the church indeed was doing things and anticipating doing things behind the scenes and that things would at least happen in this case that they were going to want some distance from and want to blame their lawyers, which is exactly what Eric Hawkins does when it blows up. And the mistake I think he makes is pointing back to the language in both the statements that was put there for the purpose of being pointed back to when things blew up. Okay, now we're going to get to April 4th, Wednesday. Because on April 4th, an article appeared in the Salt Lake Tribune written by Peggy Fletcher Stack that begins with this surprising sentence. A woman was shocked to see her name in a Mormon church-compiled dossier, which she says was designed to discredit her birth mother. Okay, now let me back up here a bit just to give you some information to help you understand this story in the Salt Lake Tribune. First off, we talked about the letter that was authored by David Jordan, the church's attorney. I need to tell you at this point that through a great deal of research on my part, I have come into possession of a copy of that letter by David Jordan. I have read it, so I know what it looks like and what it contains. The press has continued to use the term dossier when describing this letter. Now, dossier is technically not what this letter is. A dossier is a collection of documents related to a certain person or thing. This letter is not a dossier. Now, it is obvious that David Jordan has a dossier on McKenna Denson. In fact, I'm sure it's a very thick dossier by this point. But the letter that we're talking about that he sent to McKenna's attorney and also CC'd a copy of to Greg Bishop is not the dossier. It does not contain any documents. Instead, it is a seven-page letter that summarizes the contents of the dossier that David Jordan has collected. And of course, because he is the attorney representing the church, it is slanted in favor of his client, which means it's slanted against McKenna Denson. It is this seven-page letter that David Jordan, the church's attorney, cc'd to Greg Bishop, Joseph Bishop's attorney. Greg Bishop then took this seven-page letter and recapitulated it, I assume, on his own letterhead. I do not have a copy and have not seen the letter that was written by Greg Bishop. But it is clear from the news reports, who have seen both of them, that Greg Bishop's letter was indeed based on, and even in many places, quotes word for word from the David Jordan letter. One big difference between the two is that David Jordan's letter mentions the first and last name of the child that McKenna Denson had when she was 17 years old. She had this baby out of wedlock. The baby was given up 
for adoption through LDS Social Services and this baby was adopted to an LDS couple and has since then been raised by the LDS couple and is now a woman in her 30s who lives in San Diego. It is this woman who is the biological daughter of McKenna Denson who was adopted out through LDS Social Services in the 1970s who is the woman that Peggy Fletcher Stack refers to in the very first line of this article. Okay, so let's go back to the article now. The article starts off, A woman was shocked to see her name in a Mormon church-compiled dossier. That's the David Jordan letter, which she says was designed to discredit her birth mother. Well, yeah, I've seen the letter. It was definitely designed to discredit her birth mother, McKenna Denson. The article goes on, Last week, a 35-year-old woman who was adopted as an infant by a Mormon couple, discovered her name in an unexpected place. It was in the first item on a list of damaging information an LDS church-hired attorney, that's David Jordan, had compiled about her birth mother. That mother was the one who has alleged she was raped in 1984 by Joseph L. Bishop, then the president of the Missionary Training Center in Provo, while she was an LDS missionary. This is McKenna Denson. And the extensive list revealed the lawyer's efforts to assess the accuser's credibility. An aggressive response that some say could scare away other sexual assault victims and prevent them from stepping forward. Yes, indeed, that may have been the actual reason for compiling it in the first place, or at least one of the reasons for compiling it in the first place. Suddenly, the article goes on, the adoptee who lives in San Diego found herself drawn into a case that has rocked Mormonism since the release last month of a secret recording, during which Bishop, now 85, admitted to being a sex addict, quote-unquote, and molesting at least one female missionary during his MTC tenure. Though he denied raping the Colorado woman, Bishop did tell Brigham Young University police he had asked her to bare her breasts. Now, you will remember that that is the admission that Joseph Bishop made to Brigham Young University police when they went to his residence in Arizona to interview him in early December of 2017. At the press conference, which still has not occurred as of April 4th, McKenna Denson will say that that was not she. In other words, the story that Joseph Bishop admitted to about asking a sister missionary to bare her breasts and then she complied was not McKenna Denson. That must have been somebody else. The LDS Church turned to Salt Lake City attorney David Jordan. See, now we get his name here in the article. David Jordan to investigate the woman's allegations and to communicate with her Idaho lawyer, Craig Vernon. That is the name of McKenna Denson's lawyer, Craig Vernon. He's from Idaho, who was seeking a financial settlement on her behalf. Jordan, who did not return a request for comment made to his office, launched an inquiry. In a nine-page letter to the woman's attorney, Okay, let me back up there for a second. The letter itself is actually seven pages long. There are two pages that are attached to it that appear to be hand drawings used to illustrate some testimony that was given during an interview conducted by David Jordan. But technically, the letter itself is seven pages long. Peggy Fletcher Stack is counting the two additional pages to say it's a nine-page letter. Going on, in a nine-page letter to the woman's attorney, he notes inconsistencies, quote-unquote, in her story and details a string of episodes in the accuser's life ranging from the church discipline she had previously faced to her criminal record and from failed relationships to lawsuits, even job firings. 
So Peggy Fletcher Stack obviously has a copy of this letter written by David Jordan in front of her, and she is summarizing the extensive investigation that he did into the background of McKenna Denson in order to try and dig up dirt on her to use in this letter to send to her attorney, and also CC to Greg Bishop, but to send to her attorney saying why it is that he is rejecting their offer of negotiation and telling them basically to go pound sand. The article continues, A bulleted timeline begins with the woman's teenage pregnancy and includes the name of the daughter she gave up for adoption. So we talked about that. This is David Jordan letter which has the name of the daughter that she gave up for adoption and the name of the daughter was not given to her by McKenna Denson, the mother. Instead, it was given to her by the adopting parents. The adopting parents are the ones who named the child because she was adopted as a baby. And yet, David Jordan has access to documents somehow that reveal the name of the child. This starts to become very interesting because the question is raised, where did David Jordan get the name of the child from? Did he get it, in fact, from being allowed access into the adoption papers which are held by the LDS Social Services, which is run by the LDS Church. And if that is correct, it looks an awful lot like the LDS Church was helping their attorney, David Jordan, by not only paying for his services, but making available to him highly classified and confidential documents in the possession of the LDS Church relating to the adoption of McKenna Denson's child. So this may have been a mistake by David Jordan, the church's attorney, to include the name of the adopted daughter in his letter. It was certainly a breach of privacy of the daughter and a breach of privacy for McKenna Denson and a breach of privacy for the Mormon couple who adopted the daughter. That much I think is clear. But over and above that, the question remains to be answered as to how it was David Jordan obtained access to documents from which he could learn the first and last name of this adopted daughter. And once again, when Greg Bishop got a copy of this letter, he reformatted it and recapitulated it in his own words, in his own letter, presumably on his own letterhead. Once again, I don't have a copy of the Greg Bishop letter, but he removed in his version of the letter the name of the adopted daughter. It appears only in the David Jordan letter. Continuing with the article, a bulleted timeline begins with a woman's teenage pregnancy and includes the name of the daughter she gave up for adoption. Seeing her name in the file on her birth mother was troubling on several levels. The adoptee told the Salt Lake Tribune this week, quote, it has given me a lot of anxiety, unquote. She asked not to be named because she is not part of the case her biological parent has made against Bishop, that's Joseph Bishop, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The California woman, that's the adopted daughter, the California woman does not see why the Utah-based faith would mention her birth and adoption as something to be used to undercut her mom's credibility. Well, that's a huge question, isn't it? Apparently, David Jordan put anything and everything he could in this seven-page letter to use against McKenna Denson, including her teenage pregnancy and her giving up her baby by adoption. He is obviously throwing everything he can against the wall. But the question asked here in the article is a good question. What relevance does that have to whether McKenna is a credible witness? It has absolutely none, and certainly the name of this adopted daughter has no relevance to the case.
which makes me wonder whether all of this was included in the letter originally, not because it had any relevance to the case or to the merits of the case that was being alleged by McKenna Denson against the church, but whether it was put in there once again as an implicit threat that if McKenna Denson moves forward, the information in that letter would be made public, including the adoption, including the name of her adopted daughter. And strangely enough, that is exactly what happened. The article goes on, The daughter's adoption, conducted through an LDS church agency, that's LDS Social Services, conducted through an LDS church agency, was closed. She said it took intense sleuthing on her part to find her birth mom. So even the adoptive daughter had to go through a lot of sleuthing to find the name of her birth mom. She wasn't able to simply access the file because it was closed. Though this daughter is not close to her biological parent, i.e. McKenna Denson, she supports her efforts to confront Joseph Bishop. What she did was brave, and I am proud of her for getting him to confess, the younger woman said. Regardless of her past, and whatever she's done, this is a separate issue, and there's a lot of validity to her assault claims. The article goes on, Jordan shared his letter with Bishop's son, Greg Bishop. We've covered that who is acting as his father's attorney to use in any settlement efforts. Jordan did not share his letter with reporters, but Greg Bishop, who declined to comment for this story, there's a lot of declining to comment for this story, you'll notice, who declined to comment for this story, copied some of the information about the victim, omitting mention of the adopted daughter's name, and sent it to various news outlets as a way to defend his dad. The full letter has since leaked out. Okay, I just want to recap a little bit here. We now have three elements of evidence going on that I think contribute toward the substantial possibility that the church has been engaged in a cover-up. We've talked about the first two parts already, and I'll recapitulate those myself in a second, but this third part here has to do with Greg Bishop's letter. He receives from David Jordan the seven-page letter, which is a synopsis a virulent synopsis of the massive dossier that David Jordan has collected through at least a month of intensive effort on his part and the part of staff in his office, and also apparently with help from the LDS Church in accessing records that are available only to the LDS Church. Let me bring up here the irony of the fact that the LDS Church in its first statement said that the Church does not have the tools that are available to law enforcement. Well, actually, whereas that is true in some respects, the church has tools that are not available to law enforcement because no law enforcement could have or would have gone into the closed files of the adoption of McKenna Denson's child and retrieved the information from it, including the child's name. They would not have that power. The file is closed and no judge in the world would sign off on a warrant to allow them to do that. But it appears that the church went into its closed file since they were in possession of the file or made that file available to David Jordan as part of his investigation of McKenna Denson. And also to the degree that McKenna Denson's church disciplinary history was contained in this David Jordan letter. That is also something that would not have been available to law enforcement. So the church not only has tools that are not available to law enforcement, which are confidential, the church appears to have had no trouble providing that highly confidential information to their attorney for him to compile his seven-page letter, which he then sent to Greg Bishop, 
and Greg Bishop, as we said, then recapitulated the David Jordan letter into a five-page letter, which he then gave to the press. So here's the question I have for Greg Bishop. He receives a seven-page letter from David Jordan with all this dirt on the woman, McKenna Denson, who is accusing his dad and his client of raping her at the MTC. He wants to make this public. He could have simply taken the letter that was written by David Jordan and chopped it around to the media, but no, he took the extra step and did the extra work of recapitulating the David Jordan letter into his own letter of five pages. And he also omitted the name of the adopted daughter. It seems clear that as a minimum, Greg Bishop knew that he was going to take this information and give it to the press, and he did not want to give it in the form and on the letter that David Jordan, the church's attorney, had provided it to him. Why? Well, apparently because when he gave the information to the press, Greg Bishop did not want the press to know where Greg Bishop got that information, and that in fact the source of that information was from the church's attorney. So Greg Bishop rewrites the letter, quoting from it in several places, and sends it to the press. Not only does he do that, he also omits the name of the adopted daughter from his version of the letter. He doesn't include that, even though it was in David Jordan's letter. Why does he omit that name? Well, perhaps it's because he's really concerned about the welfare of the adopted daughter. On the other hand, that would have been a smoking gun that he got this information from a source that could have only gotten it presumably through church records and therefore he is hiding his tracks to try and make it look like the information he's providing to the press is information that he could have gotten on his own through his own investigation. Now Greg Bishop may have had a number of reasons for doing that but one of them is certainly to hide the tracks and to shield the information source where he got this information being David Jordan the church's attorney and also possibly to shield the church from giving the information about the adoption, including the adopted daughter's name, to David Jordan. So what we have here are three elements coming together. That's the third one. The first one is that David Jordan, in the first place, does an extensive dossier on McKenna, compiles it into a seven-page letter, which he then sends not only to McKenna Denson's attorney, but also to Greg Bishop, Joseph Bishop's attorney. We've talked about why that is a little bit suspicious earlier in the podcast. So that's number one. Number two is that when Greg Bishop gets this letter and wants to shop it around to the press, he rewrites the letter and omits certain information, which apparently would make it obvious that he got this information from the church or the church's attorney. He wants to keep the dirt, but he doesn't want to have any red flags in there that show where it is that he obtained this information. So number two is that Joseph Bishop appears to want to get the information to the press, but in a way that conceals where he got the information from and shields his source, being David Jordan, and potentially further up the line, the church itself. And the third piece of evidence is that when confronted about this, Eric Hawkins, the church spokesperson, starts talking about how in the first two statements that the church released, they already said that outside counsel was doing an investigation. And we've talked previously about how it looks like the facility with which Eric Hawkins refers to those two sentences in both statements that say the same thing makes it look an awful lot like those sentences were put in those statements to be relied upon by Eric Hawkins if indeed the crap should hit the fan, which it did when the press started asking him questions about how it was that Greg Bishop got the information that he put in his letter that he then shipped out to the press. 
So any of those three pieces of evidence independently might not amount to a lot except something that looks pretty suspicious. You put them all together and you are getting an increasing amount of evidence of a cover-up. And I want to add that Greg Bishop would have been in the clear in doing what he did in recapitulating the David Jordan letter and sending it to the press, except for the fact that somehow the press was able to get a copy of the original David Jordan letter and compare the two. That's how the press was able to look at the David Jordan letter and look at the Greg Bishop letter and see that Greg Bishop had basically wholesale copied large portions of the David Jordan letter for use in his letter. It is obvious that Greg Bishop depended upon the information that was given to him in the David Jordan letter in order to write his letter, which he then sent to the press. So we know ultimately where the source came from. I don't think Greg Bishop was counting on that. But unfortunately, Greg Bishop can't explain why he did this because he's not available for comment. Going on with the Salt Lake Tribune article, Peggy Fletcher Stack interviewed a Utah therapist named Julie de Azevedo Hanks. And this is what the article says, Revealing an adopted daughter's name in the midst of an investigation that has nothing to do with her should not have happened, said Utah therapist Julie de Azevedo Hanks. Even if that name had not been mentioned, the list, which has been circulating in Mormon circles, and by list here, I think they mean the list of the alleged malefactions of McKenna Denson, as set forth in the David Jordan letter. The list, which has been circulating in Mormon circles, could have a chilling effect on other victims sharing their own stories of abuse, harassment, and assault. Here's what Julie de Azevedo Hanks says. Seeing the MTC case unfold in the media and knowing that the church's attorneys can put together a list of your past legal mistakes will make it even less safe for victims to come forward and tell their story, Hanks says. The church's initial statement used language that served to undermine the victim's credibility, showing that coming forward publicly may put your own reputation and credibility at risk. She goes on, Some Mormon victims don't speak about abuse they suffered at the hands of clergy because it is often viewed as an attack on the church, the therapist said. Many victims hate that they were abused, but dearly love the LDS Church and its teachings. Currently, there aren't systems and processes in place within Mormonism to support and minister specifically to victims of clergy abuse, Hank said. It takes incredible courage to come forward, because victims know that they might not be believed, and that they may not find an advocate in their bishop or others in the church community. They may remain quiet. And boy, didn't McKenna Denson find that out in spades. She sure didn't find an advocate in her bishop or others in the church community. And yet she did not remain quiet, and she did show incredible courage to come forward. The article goes on. Another reason victims don't come forward is because they have been abused by someone in power who is beloved in the community. The victim is in a position of powerlessness against the social capital of a church leader. The article then goes back to a Salt Lake attorney named Craig Scordus. He was quoted in a previous article by the Salt Lake Tribune. They go back to him for comment on this new fact that indeed the adopted daughter's name was mentioned in the original David Jordan letter. And here is what he says. David Jordan did extraordinary research on this woman to make it clear that the church was not going to settle. I am sure he did not intend for Greg Bishop to share it or part of it with the media. So Greg Scordis is willing to give David Jordan the benefit of the doubt on that issue. 
But none of the parties did anything unethical, illegal, or improper, Scordus said. It is reasonable for all three parties, the LDS Church, the accuser's attorney, and the alleged abuser's attorney, to share information about the case. Now finally, the article goes to a University of Utah law professor named Paul Castle for his comments on the developments. He is a longtime advocate for victims' rights and a former federal judge. Here's what the article says. An attorney for an abuser might go on the offensive and attack the accuser, he said, but an organization, like a church, typically would start by expressing concern and compassion for the victim while it examined the allegations, something that obviously did not happen here. Castle believes the LDS Church's response, especially its initial statement challenging the Colorado woman's claims, was done in haste, which is a nice professorial way of saying it was a dumbass move. Quote, I was surprised to see this maneuver executed so quickly, he said. Trash the victim is the last option an organization would typically employ. It may be the least successful tactic, used only after all other options have been exhausted. Once you go there, he said, you can't put the cat back into the bag. Piggy Fletcher Stack asked him what he thought about naming the adopted daughter in the investigative papers. The professor responded, there is no reason to make unnecessary enemies through collateral damage. So that article came out in the Salt Lake Tribune on Wednesday, April 4th. It was also on that same day, Wednesday, April 4th, that McKenna Denson's attorney filed a lawsuit against the LDS Church and against Joseph Bishop in federal court. That article came out on KUTV the same day, April 4th, Wednesday of 2018. A press release was sent out announcing the filing of the lawsuit on April 4th, and it was finally in this press release and in the lawsuit that McKenna Denson's name was finally released to the public, and she is no longer anonymous. According to the press release, McKenna Denson seeks justice for the horrific sexual assault as well as the ongoing emotional distress she suffered by repeatedly being ignored, disbelieved, shamed, and blamed by the church she loved so dearly. The lawsuit also wants changes within the LDS Church. It states that Denson and her attorneys believe changes are important to protect others, particularly children, going forward. A news conference with McKenna Denson was scheduled then for 11 o'clock in the morning on Thursday, April 5th. A few comments on the press conference. First off, McKenna Denson sat at the table between her two attorneys. She told her story during the press conference. She also answered questions from the audience and from the press at the end of the press conference. This was a huge gamble on her attorney's part. So that's the first thing I thought when she began speaking. Is her attorney actually going to allow her to speak here in public on the record? The reason it's a huge gamble for the attorneys is because regardless of the merits of your case, if your client is there speaking, anything she says can be used against her by the opposing side. Now, it's one thing to read a prepared statement, but then to allow her to answer questions from the press was remarkable. But to the extent that it was a gamble to allow McKenna Denson to speak at this press conference, it is a gamble that paid off. And my thought while watching it was, obviously McKenna's attorneys have gotten to know her well enough that they understand that she is going to come across as a very credible and very believable and very articulate witness. And what they were doing, I think, by having her talk to the press was not just getting her story out to the press, 
but they also knew that the church and the church's attorneys were going to be watching this press conference, and they were sending a message to them that they were going to have to deal with McKenna Denson, an extremely credible witness, when it comes to trial. And if that was the message that was being sent, I can guarantee you it was received loud and clear by the attorneys for the church. I just want to comment on a few things that were mentioned in the press conference regarding McKenna's story of what happened with Joseph Bishop. First off, Joseph Bishop knew who she was and had targeted her from the day she got to the MTC because it was on her first day that out of 1,200 or so new missionaries reporting to the MTC, Joseph Bishop picked McKenna to bear her testimony. And later on, the next day I believe it was, or two days later, in another similar group setting, he picks her to give the closing prayer. Then after that, McKenna is being pulled out of her Spanish class at the MTC for repeated visits to Joseph Bishop's office. First, she's meeting with three other sister missionaries, and Joseph Bishop is talking with all of them about sexual issues related to their past. They are all sexualized in some way, and it appears that Joseph Bishop knows this at the outset. My expectation is that Joseph Bishop receives a file on every new missionary together with a picture of them. He looks at the pictures, focusing, I expect, on the sister missionaries, looks for sister missionaries with problems in their past related to sexual issues, and then focuses on them and calls them into his office. That's the only way that I can explain his picking on McKenna from the very first day she got there to the MTC, and his knowing who it was that he should bring into his office to talk about a troubled sexual past. So initially, McKenna is meeting with three other sister missionaries in Joseph Bishop's office, and he is talking with them about their sexually troubled past. McKenna Denson not only had a baby out of wedlock before she came to the MTC, but she had also been sexually abused by her stepfather from the time she was four years old. And that kind of a history would be like blood in the water for a man like Joseph Bishop. So initially, they met as a group of four sister missionaries, and he talked with them about sexual issues related to their past. Then, it was winnowed down to two sister missionaries. McKenna would go. There were no longer four missionaries. There was only one other sister missionary meeting with Joseph Bishop in his office. So there were two sister missionaries talking about their past and these issues. And then finally, Joseph Bishop was meeting with McKenna alone in his office talking about these sexual issues which is at which point he then invited her to go down and see a special preparation room in the basement, to which he took her and raped her. And as McKenna told her story, the thought did cross my mind, well, at the same time that he's winnowing you down, McKenna, to begin having individual conversations with you in his office, was he doing the same thing with the other three sister missionaries that were meeting with him and you in the beginning stages? And indeed, after the press conference, a news report came out that an additional sister missionary had come forward, a former sister missionary, had come forward to McKenna's attorneys saying that when they were at the MTC, this other sister missionary, during the time that Joseph Bishop was the president, Joseph Bishop had acted sexually inappropriately toward her, but she shut it down and didn't let it go any further. And here I think it was significant, the point that McKenna made during the press conference, that because of her meeting with her bishop, regarding her sexual issues in her past and also related to getting pregnant and then having this baby out of wedlock when she was a member of the church, she became accustomed to being in a closed room with an older male priesthood leader and talking about highly sexual and sensitive issues. As McKenna said at the press conference, 
if she had not been trained that that was acceptable prior to going to the MTC, then it is unlikely that she would have thought it was acceptable for Joseph Bishop, the president of the MTC, to be meeting with her and talking with her about sexual issues. She had been trained by the LDS Church, intentionally or unintentionally. She was trained by the LDS Church to think that this type of behavior was acceptable, and therefore she became even more the potential victim and ultimately the victim of a predator such as Joseph Bishop. And finally, it was announced at the beginning of the press conference by McKenna's attorney that she had taken a polygraph and passed with flying colors. So apparently the polygraph test shows that McKenna is telling the truth about being raped by Joseph Bishop, the president of the MTC, back in 1984. Well, that's about it for now. I want you to know that I did my own public disclosure request and sent it to the BYU Police Department. You will remember that in the first podcast I did on this subject, I mentioned how the press went to the BYU Police Department and requested copies of the police reports, and initially, the BYU Police produced a document which was almost completely blacked out. It was almost completely redacted. But the press was not satisfied with that and appealed that decision in some way. And as a result of that, the BYU Police Department released a less redacted version of the police reports where more of it was legible. And part of the redacted part in the original that was not redacted in the second version was the admission by Joseph Bishop about asking a woman to bare her breast to him and that she complied. But as I pointed out in the last podcast, there are still four sentences that remain redacted even in the second release by the BYU Police Department. And these are four sentences that are immediately under and apparently part of the section in the police reports describing their interview with Joseph Bishop. I want to know what's in those four lines and why is it that the BYU Police Department is still trying to hide what's in those four lines. So I sent my own public disclosure request to the BYU Police Department requesting an unredacted copy pointing specifically to those four lines and asking that they be unredacted. After I sent that letter, I learned that not only did the police interview Joseph Bishop, but they also recorded the interview. So I sent a second supplemental records request to the BYU Police Department requesting a copy of the audio recording as well. I have not yet heard anything back from the BYU Police Department in response to my records request, but I will keep you up to date as things unfold in that regard. Finally, if and when I receive authorization to go into the contents of the David Jordan letter, I expect that I will be doing a part three of this episode. Because there are some absolute bombshells in that letter, particularly on page four. Until then... The investigation continues. And in honor of Joseph Bishop, former MTC president and current defendant in the lawsuit filed by McKenna Denson, I'm going to close out this podcast with one of my favorite songs from the 1950s by The Platters. This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Oh, yes, I'm the great pretender.
That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.